Yeah, so I'm thinking maybe at this point, you know, uh, I've done quite a bit of talking already. So, you know, maybe Noah, you could ask a question number, you know, six, then Ryland could ask, you know, seven, then Balin could ask eight. We can kind of go in that order. Uh, this question reads, what are the central texts that the Bab and the Bahwala um, wrote and what do they contain? Yeah, wonderful question. So something really unique about this stage in religious history is that writing was common. <laughs> so that means that the the Bab and Baha'u'llah throughout their whole lives were able to write themselves or and dictate to others to, you know, to write on their behalf. Tablets and prayers and letters. So there are vast amounts of scriptures in the Baha'i faith that we have access to on such a variety of topics and individuals were able to write to them at the time when they were living with their questions about specific religious doctrines or, or mystical questions or faith traditions or things that they were struggling with and receive you know clarification from the manifestations themselves so there's just such an array um, of, of texts and uh, there are a few that are kind of recognized as having special significance within within the uh, the teachings um, so some of those uh, are say one that's referred to as the most holy book the Kitabi Akdas uh, which is a book in which Baha'u'llah revealed a number of laws and, and and ordinances about how we should live our lives and how society should be structured and how communities should operate um, that there's but there's also many many others that are that are well known like uh, there are some books that are more mystical like the hidden words which encapsulates certain spiritual teachings and traditions that have been passed down throughout the ages in humanity and that are really summarizing those in these short little pieces for for meditation. Um, and similarly, there's another text called the Seven Valleys, which is a really, really mystical one, uh, especially in response to some of the Sufi uh, religious movement and, and people at that time that were asking him all these religious, so these spiritual, mystical questions. It's kind of reads more like poetry. <laughs> um, but there's also ones that are more on like philosophy and and religion. Um, there's a book called the Kitabi Igan, which means the Book of Certitude, um, that was written to uh, actually one of the uncles of the Bab who wrote to Baha'u'llah asking him these questions that he was confused about, about all of these faith traditions that talk about um, these predictions of what will happen, uh, you know, these signs of the next coming of another manifestation, and how do we recognize them, and how do we know if they've fulfilled all these prophecies or not. So the book kind of explores that that philosophy and religion. Um, and, and, and yeah, like I said, numerous other letters and tablets, and uh, he, I think he wrote over 100 volumes, Baha'u'llah himself. Um, and there's also a collection of writings from the Bob. And all of these are, are available too through, uh, many of them you can find in libraries and bookstores and online and whatnot. But there's also, yeah, an online ref Baha'i reference library that has all of these texts for free that people can, can uh, look at. It's just um, www.baha'i.org slash library. And so it has all of these writings <laughs> in many languages. Uh, yeah, something I wanted to add was that, you know, the mystical aspect of, of this seems to, seems to make a lot of sense to me because it, it the religion, uh, uh, the Baha'i faith coming out of uh, Shia Islam and the fact that, that the Baha'i faith has, you know, kind of a mystical side to it, you're, you're going to see in the text makes a lot of sense because it, it seems to me like this is, a, of course, a, a massive generalization, but it seems to me like, you know, one difference between uh, Sunnism, uh, Sunnism and you know, Shiism is that the is that Shia Islam seems to have a more mystical side to it. You can think, for example, uh, Persian Sufis, um, um, and you know, I I think that's a very prevalent example. Would be you know, Rumi uh, uh, would be a very prevalent example known a lot in the West. Um, 
and also, you know, the Shia cyclical time model, I think we're going to get into that uh, uh, pr pretty soon. Um, that was also used by, you know, the uh, Ismaili Shia group, and the Ismaili Shia group uh, ha have, a, have a tremendous emphasis on mysticism. Uh, so also the Twelver Shia group seems to have um, one as well for, like, you know, the reasons I mentioned kind of its, I guess, kind of its ties to Persian Sufism, because, you know, as an example, Rumi, he was part of a Sufi order. Actually, the Safavid Empire was founded by a, a Sufi order. Um, so I thought that was worth mentioning, the, the connection between those two. Yeah, and maybe to share also, in addition to the writings that the Bab and, and Baha'u'llah revealed of their own accord, like these books, but also in response to the questions of the people that were living at their time, those contemporaries who had 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 questions based on those backgrounds you've been mentioning. Um, also, the son of Baha'u'llah, Abdul Baha, was appointed to be uh, the center of his covenant after he passed. So someone that the community could turn to when they had questions about the religious teachings of, of Baha'u'llah and about their application and, and who could also continue to, you know, R reveal clarification on these things. So in the lifetime of Abdu'l-Bahá, there were many more <laughs> tablets and letters and, and prayers that were revealed by him in response uh, to the needs of humanity of the time and also to specific questions. There was even a, a Christian woman from the West who came and visited Abdu'l-Bahá when he was still imprisoned in Akka and, uh, and asked him all of her questions. In fact, they're compiling a book called Some Answered Questions. <laughs> and she asked all these questions with the background in Christianity about all of these different topics that, that uh, you know, that, that might come uh, come up for someone of that background uh, who would have questions about a new faith and its revelation. So there were also many texts written by Abdu'l-Bahá that are available. And, and since at that time, the faith during his lifetime had spread to different parts of the world, then there's also people with other, uh, you know, from the West, Western uh, backgrounds and, and faith traditions that were reaching out to him and asking for asking questions. And so those ones are also very interesting. And sometimes they're more familiar to those of us who come from that background in particular. And, and that those kind of writings can be a bit more accessible, um, as I myself am not immersed in these mystical teachings of Shia Islam. <laughs> but I am immersed in a society that has lots of, um, you know, Christian concepts that are running through it. So it's it was, uh, I think those writings are helpful too. Abdu'l-Bahá actually spent a lot of his life um, you know, sharing teachings, but also traveling in his in his old age. I think when he was in his seventies, he was all of the political prisoners in 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 um, the Ottoman Empire were finally released, and so he was able to travel. So he traveled throughout Europe. He traveled in America, uh, and he gave talks wherever he went. So many talks, and so there's also collections of his of his talks that um, that are really helpful to to look at. Yeah, fascinating. And there's more questions about Abdul Baha, I believe. So we can delve into that a little bit later. Uh, Noah, did, or rather, Ryland, did you want to ask uh, question number seven? Yeah. So um, what is the man manifestation of God and who are the manifestations of God in the Baha'i faith? Yeah. So the throughout the ages, we believe that. So maybe to, to back up one step from manifestation of God, it might be helpful to clarify the term God itself. Because I know that's kind of a basic um, spiritual teaching that each faith takes a stab at <laughs> to help us understand um, you know, this this source of our of our lives. So by also the 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 teachings share about the, the God being this this spiritual uh, 
essence, this unknowable essence that we can't know directly. He's our creator. And as you look around the world, any example that we have of something that's been created could never understand that which created it. It's it's above, you know, a, a carpenter makes a table. The table has no capacity to understand the carpenter, <laughs> to put it simply. So similarly, you know, God created all of us and we're told from the writings that he created us out of his love for us. And that he is part of that, you know, would promise this covenant with mankind that he would never leave us without spiritual guidance. And so from time to time, he sends us these manifestations of himself to help us understand his teachings and, and his will for mankind and to as, as a token of his love, as a, of his love for us. So throughout the ages, then God has sent these divine messengers, which we refer to as manifestations of God. And um, among them would be figures such as Abraham, Krishna, you mentioned Zoroaster, uh, Moses, Buddha, uh, Jesus Christ, Muhammad, and then in, in more recent times, the Bab and Baha'u'llah. And that their central purpose is cultivating humanity's, you know, spiritual and intellectual and moral capacities. So following the coming of these manifestations of God, you see extraordinary progress happening, you know, occurring across the world um, over time. And, and that their teachings also tend to reach so deeply into the roots of human motivation that you see these individual transformations as well in, in, in human behavior and in societal structures, um, and that their, their teachings awaken in whole populations <laughs> these capacities to contribute to the advancement of civilization to an extent that was never before possible prior to those teachings being revealed. So there, of course, were lost to history, I'm sure, many other examples <laughs> of these manifestations um, to mankind. But those are some of the ones that we, you know, for sure know about from our uh, our written and oral histories that we've collected as 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 a human humanity, <laughs> as a human body. Uh, and, his, and historians, I'm sure, would would love to to, to peel back the veils of, <laughs> of human history and find many, many more. Because, um, of course, you know, if God loves us, why would he? Why would he leave us alone? He always sends these messengers, including, you know, those in the past or those on distant lands and, um, you know, across the world. Yeah, that's actually when we were doing an interview with with a man who is a he's kind of an expert, I think, in, in Mahdi Islam. Um, he said that, you know, in uh, that there are like, you know, that hundred there's like, I don't know, like a hundred thousand, if not more, you know, prophets who people who we don't know about. I I'm gonna assume I don't. This actually is not only an Amadi belief, but the the specific number maybe. However, what's what's interesting is that in Islam there are all sorts of there's. It is believed that there are all sorts of unnamed prophets who have come before. Um, you know the the you know Muhammad, Jesus, um, Moses, Job, etc. I guess Job Job was I guess yeah Job is a prophet. I just I I just mentioned him because that these yeah. From from like the, the prophets who you would know, what's interesting about the Ahmadi religion is it also has kind of a universal um, um, uh, design to it, you could say, which is that there, which is that he actually they also use the term manifestation of God too, and the guy who founded the religion he also like pinpoints um, some some people who were uh, prophets in the past, such as Zoroaster, Krishna, uh, I believe Confucius, um, so. It's it's quite fascinating to compare them, um, and then Balin, would you like to ask about uh, number eight? How do Baha'i, the Baha'i, um, use the twelve Shia cyclical time model for their theology? 
So I think I, I shared after I first had read your question that this is a very interesting one because I think these are some there's some terms in here that most Baha'is would not be aware of. <laughs> Um, but I happened when I was in college to study, I had a minor in religious, uh, religious studies. I was studying to be a social studies teacher doing world cultures for secondary school. But I, my minor was in religious studies and I, and you had to have a focus and mine was on the study of Islamic studies. So I happened to know about the 12 Shias from that, but it's not necessarily something that everyone uh, is deeply aware of when they, when they come to find the Baha'i faith and, and become followers of it. But in the interest of your question, I dug back into my memories from, <laughs> from my time studying Islam. And uh, I think essentially the Twelvers believe that after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, which was in the, you know, 632 CE, you know, sometime in that range, um, there's this kind of the, the spiritual and political leadership of the Muslim community, they believe was ordained by Muhammad to pass down to Ali, who was the Prophet's cousin and, and son-in-law. Um, and then from then to Ali's son, and then down like across all of these imams. So as with the passing of any manifestation, the followers are um, eager to have someone to turn to, to help them understand the teachings of their manifestation. And, and uh, over time, there might be those that are taking advantage of that for personal gain. There may be ones that are just sincerely trying to understand the teachings and their implications for various situations. And over time, you have the development of perhaps different groups, different sects within a religion, as they're trying to interpret the, the, the teachings of their, of their manifestation. Um, and so one of these sects then that grew after the passing of Muhammad was the, the, the Shia sect and the 12 or Shias in particular were looking at who is it that we're supposed to turn to and we think Muhammad said to turn to Ali and then Ali tells us who to turn to next and then he tells us who to turn to next and so forth and so on down this kind of hereditary line of appointment um, of, of who, who would, would need to be turned to. So then in that, in that particular tradition, um, the 12th Imam was believed to uh, have kind of gone into hiding, have gone into the state of concealment by God um, after the death of his father. So then he became known as this hidden imam. And then there was this belief in the community that at some time this imam would return. And it would be uh, at this time that God had designated, you know, alongside, like the, you mentioned the, the term before, the mihti, this rightly guided one, um, that his return would be inaugurating this process of this, these last days of the old world order <laughs> and the beginning of this new world order um, that would come through, you know, to, to mankind. Um, this, this often referred to day of judgment when we would move beyond our, our past and, and, and grow together to be a world community. So, um, yeah, there's lots of titles then that were associated with the return of this imam to mankind, uh, you know, the awaited one, the Lord of the age, the Lord of authority, one who arises, which is the Qayyam. Um, and so when the Bab revealed his message, he was fulfilling some of those prophecies like to be the Qayyam. Um, and similarly, you mentioned the Mithi that, you know, that, uh, that this, this joint follower of both the Mithi and the Qayyam would return at that time. And that that when and Baha'is believe that that's the both the Bob and Baha'u'llah. And something uh, I believe that Noah, you have I, uh, I think like no, you you know a little bit about the uh, the, the twelve uh, the the twelve imams, uh, right? You were telling you were telling me telling me that, about that at lunch one time. Do you want to do you want to elaborate yeah, on that? I, um, I pretty much know what uh, Stephanie's already said, um, and that there was like a succession of imams, um, you know. Um, 
and uh, I, I know that there was the, the Twelfth Imam, and uh, the Twelfth Imam is still not known. Um, and then that was kind of like uh, the Twelfth Imam is the one who's supposed to uh, come, you know, uh, later to uh, like he, he's the Mehdi. Um, and then after the Twelfth Imam, there isn't any more because they like lost track or something. It was. The, the whole thing is incredibly long and hard to follow. <laughs> Convoluted history of humankind. <laughs> yeah, the challenge of our historians to track accurately all that has occurred in the centuries of, of human life on this planet. Yeah, much is lost to history. But that which we do know, these are, these are, that's what I'm trying <laughs> to, to dig into and share from what I had studied before. What's interesting about cyclical time is like, this is uh, this seems to me to be a very Shia concept. I don't know of this in uh, any uh, Sunni schools, but basically in the book of Genesis, there are, you know, uh, God created the earth and, or it, it can also be in, uh, it's, it's also, I would, uh, I guess it would logically follow that it's in the Quran as well. God creates the uh, universe and, uh, or yeah, the universe in six days and rests on day seven. Now it's interesting about, you know, there's seven, there's seven days in a week. So what, what happens is, you know, people in Shia Islam ascribed or in certain schools of Shia Islam or perhaps we can or perhaps people, certain people in certain schools of Shia Islam would you know ascribe like a certain prophet to a certain to a certain um, day like like you were saying a dispensation like for example um, I'm, I'm pretty sure um, Mah yeah Muhammad is Friday and then sat and then Saturday is um, maybe like the the Mahdi and then sun Sunday is the new world to come or maybe Muhammad Saturday and then the, the Mahdi is like um, Sunday and that's the new world to come or maybe Saturday is the final day I'm not entirely sure but basically what it is is a prophet is assigned to a certain day which is affiliated with a certain like age which is affiliated with a certain day in the book of Genesis and then each prophet or manifestation brings along certain um, writing, like for example, Jesus brings the Gospels, Muhammad brings the Quran, Moses brings the Torah. Uh, actually, in fact, the what the um, Ismaili Shia group, there, uh, there, there's an Ismaili Shia group um, called the, uh, they're called um, the Brethren of Purity. They're actually a secret society. And I, my understanding, I think, if I remember correctly, I could be incorrect though, was that they actually ascribed like, um, like actually other religions too. Like, like they gave like Hinduism a day and like Zoroastrianism a day. But that could be incorrect on that. I haven't checked in that in a while. But the point is, like, a day is assigned to a prophet, and, and like, a day is an age. So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe semi-related to that. I don't know much about this specific um, practice that you're talking about. But I do know that in all the faiths, there's also uh, teachings that are about how we socially organize ourselves as, as, uh, as, a, as a body of humanity. And oftentimes that influences things like our calendar <laughs> and how, you know, what is our calendar and how do, what do we celebrate when and, and how do we, um, how do we commemorate certain days? How do we, you know, recognize times for work and times for rest and um, times for service, times for prayer, that these are things that are, that are delineated by these me messengers from God. And that, you know, similarly in the Baha'i faith, there are teachings around like what uh, what the calendar should look like and what we should call those days of the week. And and um, different faiths will ascribe like, uh, uh, like even the words that we use, right? Like we, they've kind of lost their meaning in English, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're like, okay, well, it's just the day. But, <laughs> but they have origins in like a spiritual 
term, you know, and, and similarly in the Baha'i faith, like those days could, uh, the calendar is talked about as like ascribing a particular um, like spiritual quality uh, to certain days and months, you know, like a, a glory or beauty or perfection or justice or grace or majesty. Like there's different terms that are, that are used to, to be the titles of those, of those days and, um, or, or months. Certainly. And I think, uh, you know, segueing into talking about, you know, uh, those, the prophets of those certain dispensations, uh, Noah, would you like to ask question nine? Then we can go from, you know, Rylan can ask the next one and Bill can ask the next one after that. Uh, sure. All right. So this question reads, uh, how do the teachings of, uh, Abraham, um, uh, proto-Judaism, the religion of, uh, El, uh, or El- Elohim at the very latest, uh, Krishna, uh, Moses, Zarathustra, um, what's the other ones? Uh, Buddha, Jesus, and Muhammad uh, all fit together to create the unified Baha'i God. Um, and what makes God and the Baha'i faith different than that of only uh, Hinduism, only Judaism, um, only Zoroastrianism, only Christianity, or only Islam? In other words, how does Yah- uh, Yahweh? Uh, Ahura Mazda, I don't know how to say that. Yeah, Zoroastrianism. Um, yeah. Um, Allah, uh, God the Father, Elohim, um, and the supreme forces of Hinduism converged to, uh, to create one deity, and how is that deity different from the deities of separate religions? Yeah. Um, I think similar to how I kind of started off on that question before about who are the manifestations of God and, and what is that term and kind of backed up into the term of, yeah, what is the Baha'i teachings on God, you know, himself, that might be a, a good place to jump off from. So as I mentioned, Baha'u'llah teaches that God is this unknowable, is unknowable in his essence. So it means that, you know, it's, it, we can't make accurate images of God in our mind, thinking of him, for example, as a man or as a particular being that in general, you know, what is created can't understand its creator so because this existence is incomprehensible to us as the, as the creatures, uh, you know, we know that God is the creator of all things that, as you know, you were mentioning uh, in, in, uh, in, the, in the teachings of, of Christ as well and, 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 and of Moses, that he's this maker of the heavens and the earth, the mountains, valleys, deserts, seas, you know, all that we, all that we see that has grown and come to be. Um, that God is is our creator and and the same as of human beings. And um, I mentioned before that the Baha'i writings focus on that the reason behind our creation. We're told by Baha'u'llah is love. There's there's a quote in the Hidden Words that he wrote that summarizes that concept. Where he says, "O son of man, I loved thy creation; hence I created thee. Wherefore do thou love me that I may name thy name and fill thy soul with the spirit of life." So knowing that he loves us, we know that he set, tries to help us understand more about his essence, <laughs> since it's not something we can fully comprehend. These divine teachers that he sends to us from time to time, these manifestations of himself, help us to understand gradually more and more about the concept of God, our creator. Um, and through the limitations that are imposed on our understanding and also by our language, honestly, we, <laughs> we come to understand different elements of the qualities and attributes of God that we are, you know, told that we can assign to him, the all-knowing, the all-wise, the omnipotent, the, the uh, all-loving, all of these qualities uh, are, are terms that we use in our finite way to try and understand aspects of, of this unknowable essence. So these manifestations of God then are, are kind of like, to use an analogy in the physical world to help us understand it. So 
since the word manifest means to, you know, to reveal or, or to show forth something that wasn't known before, the manifestations of God are these special beings who are meant to reveal to humanity the word and the will of God. And uh, this uh, is kind of like if you, if you, if you, so it's kind of like, okay, let's use an example. So if you look at the sun, you can't look at it directly. <laughs> your, your eyes can't handle it. You can't approach it. It's too powerful for us to be, we'd be all, all consumed, but you can still, uh, it's the source of warmth. It's the source of our warmth and of our life and light. And we, life couldn't exist without it on our planet. But the sun itself doesn't need to descend to the earth in order for us to receive those things. And, and since we'd be consumed upon approach, there's an, a, an, you know, other elements that, that help us to connect. So if you took a mirror that was perfectly polished and point that towards the sun, it's something that could reflect that same image of the sun to mankind. It's this, so these manifestations are like these perfectly polished mirrors that help us to understand more about the nature of God and, and his essence. And so all of these manifestations over time then share teachings with us to help us understand more about the qualities of God. So in the perspective of the Baha'i faith, all of these references to, to God and his qualities and attributes are referring to one spiritual entity to this this unknowable creator of ours that that sends guidance from time to time so we see all of these different terms that are used all these different titles and names as just our attempts at trying to praise and worship and understand what essentially is is one unknowable essence i think that certainly uh points us uh towards our next question uh which maybe rylan you could ask number 10 right um so why were those people chosen as manifestations of God? Like, is there a criteria or what, what must they fall under? Yeah, yeah. So this is interesting. I, when thinking about this question, I kind of thought about it in two elements. One's kind of like the historical context of, you know, what, where these manifestations are coming from. But the other is like maybe this question about like, why are these individuals specifically the manifestation or is it more about like uh how do we know that someone really is a manifestation versus just someone claiming to be you know <laughs> a manifestation so maybe i could touch on these three elements of that question since i'm not i'm not sure which would be most helpful but so in that historical context element so the coming of each manifestation is is like the dawn of a new day for mankind so their teachings they bring this illumination to humanity um, the early days of the religion are kind of like the dawn when this light is just beginning to, to, to come to mankind. And as time passes, the religion grows and it exercises its full power to transform society and you know, reaches the zenith where it's really impacting the whole world after this glimmer at the horizon when it begins. Um, so the more time passes, though, the more people often will turn away from um, these original teachings or they'll be splintered into you know divisions or and and also you know society what it's facing changes and the problems mankind faces changes and it's and it becomes often more and more corrupt again as it strays from this path that god set before it so that becomes the night you know of the of that religion and then god sends his next messenger to mankind to to really assist us so um, you could see then that this this time that we're living in and, and this context in which Baha'u'llah appeared of this kind of a moral, corrupt, spiritually backward <laughs> like uh, state uh, that the, that humanity was in in the area where he appeared, like this is the case of all the manifestations when they appear. That's kind of the, the experience that humanity is having at the time of their appearance and the, the need um, to, you know, somehow move beyond the kind of dogmas and superstitions and the outer semblances of religious practice that, 
you know, just kind of feed into the power and benefit of those who wield it, that that's, that's when the messengers need to appear for mankind and they're needed the most. So that's kind of like the context in which, you know, these manifestations arise. But then if we're thinking about the individuals themselves, I know that there's many references, uh, you know, to how, how we recognize those souls, you know, what, what is it that are traits of their lives, certainly the influence that they have on human hearts and understanding and their ability to transform individuals in society. That's something that's unique to these, indivi these individuals. Also that they endure so much suffering in their lives is often another trait um, of something, but that despite that suffering, they have tremendous influence <laughs> and that no matter how much people try and put out the light of their teachings, they just spread more. It's like oil on a fire instead of quenching it, it spreads. Uh, and that's a trait that you see again, again, in, in, in the stories of all of these. Um, let's see. Yeah. Baha'u'llah mentions that, you know, the frequently attest, you know, the, uh, that there's like that people are kind of tested when it comes to recognizing the manifestation of God, right? Like there are, there are things that happen in their lives or the teachings that they share that are so different from what people are anticipating or expecting in their own mind about who the, who the manifestation should be and what they should do, that it becomes a test for those followers to actually recognize that, you know, I think um, like an example in the Bible, right. Is the, is, is the story of Moses, right. Before the mantle of prophethood, Moses was was known to have assisted in um, in the killing of a person. And so, you know, he, he fled that town when the judgment was pronounced against them. And so people he spent time in the wilderness, he returned and he was transformed by this vision from God. And when he returned to deliver this message, the people around were just shocked right <laughs> they're like wait <laughs> you know like are you know aren't thou not he that committed a murder and became an infidel <laughs> and then instead like this god has the power to transform any soul and so you know this instead like became what was a test for the people to recognize at that time moses and his and his true you know station of his, as this wonderful manifestation of god became you know some you know uh uh a challenge for the people to recognize him. But then it became so obvious when you look at the course of his life and his words and his deeds, that this indeed was who he was. Um, and I think at, at similarly, you can look at how, uh, you know, let's see, where is it? Uh, let me look up the quote. There's a, there's a quote in the Bible that's talking about like recognizing uh, a tree by its fruit. Um, let's see. Uh, then this is kind of maybe in regard to like, false prophets, you know, because there's also a concern, a very, a very sincere concern on the behalf of many believers to say, okay, so the writings of our faith say that so-and-so is returning, <laughs> but how do I know if it's them? How do I know that it's not someone trying to gain power for themselves or lead me astray or Satan in disguise or what, you know, how do I, how do I know? Um, and, and I think that's some, a question that many of us think about, especially now that we live in this global society where we have access to the teachings of all these world faiths. And we may have one that we grew up with learning about, but then how do we know about like the, the truth that is in, you know, in, in these various faiths. So one of the, um, one of the quotes it's in Matthew, uh, it says, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits is what he says. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistle? Even, even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth, forth, that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. 
So I think that that element of like looking at the fruits of the lives of these of these individuals helps us to recognize them. When you see in their teachings, in their words, in their actions, um, and in the and and in the in the influence that these teachings have on humanity, these examples of fruit. How could a bad tree bring out good fruit? <laughs> so we look at those fruits and for signs of those to help us recognize, you know, these, these individuals. It's kind of like they leave us with the, it's like the manifestations leave us with hints about what's to come after them in the far future so that the followers, you know, followers, followers, followers will be able to, at that time, arise and recognize these, these manifestations of themselves returning. Yeah, I think we've, we've certainly, you know, set up the historical context and set up the, um, who the figures are in the religion so far. Uh, we've touched on, uh, you know, the doctrinal and the theological um, details of the religion a bit. So I think we can we can certainly tra- transition into you know talking more about the theology and the and the doctrine and the in the structure of the of the current religion uh, today. So I'll let uh, Bill and ask a question real quick, but I think I'll try to transition into that by saying um so so how would this is more of a doctrinal question. So how would like a Baha'i deal with contradictions between the text, or I guess in the, in the Baha'i view, perceived contradictions between the text? So as an example, Jesus is crucified in the Gospels, um, but not the uh, Quran. An example would be, um, you know, the Trinity is uh, seen as a, by most Christians as, you know, an official doctrine of Christianity, uh, whereas Islam espouses, you know, Tawheed. And then in the Old uh, Testament, you could, or the Hebrew Scriptures, you could see like, uh, a sort of binitarianism, a sort of two powers theology, um, which is a, which is actually ruled uh, heretical by by uh, almost all uh, Jews, uh, which happened in like the around the first or second century. But I was wondering, so how would a Baha'i deal with the contradictions or perceived contradictions between texts? Yeah, and that's I think something that in our search for looking for truths and these fruits is uh, another source of challenge for us in our faiths, <laughs> you know, to to look at these things, and these teachings and try and understand them and, and, and to try and understand them when there's, you know, like you said, perceived contradictions between something. And, and sometimes that even occurs within the same writings of one faith, you know, in one spot, it says that truthfulness is the utmost quality. And in another one, you said that it was love. So which is it truthfulness or love, you know, and then you have to try and reckon, you know, reconcile it and think, oh, okay, well, maybe you can't truly understand love without truthfulness and then now they're the same thing you know <laughs> but i think there's like ways that we have to learn to to in- interpret writings uh to see the harmony within them that, that the intention of of god's faith is to bring about unity and harmony and so we have to root out these sources of of conflict and contention and, and things that we might hold on to as a particular way of interpreting something that could cause you know said conflict but there actually was a quote uh, where abdul baha was addressing this kind of similar question and i was thinking his words are far more powerful and, <laughs> and direct in mind that maybe i would read read that as just kind of an example of how baha'is reconcile like some of these perceived conflicts that you mentioned so in one of his talks he shared the divine prophets have revealed and founded religion they have laid down certain laws and heavenly principles for the guidance of mankind they have taught and promulgated the knowledge of god established praiseworthy ethical ideals and inculcated the highest standards of virtues in the human world. Gradually, these heavenly teachings and foundations of reality have been beclouded by human interpretations and dogmatic imitations of ancestral beliefs. The essential realities which the prophets labored so hard to establish in human hearts and minds, 
while undergoing ordeals and suffering tortures of persecutions, have now well have now well nigh vanished. Some of these heavenly messengers have been killed, some imprisoned, all of them despised and rejected while proclaiming the reality of divinity. Soon after their departure from this world, the essential truth of their teachings was lost, lost sight of and dogmatic imitations adhered to. Inasmuch as human imitation and blind imitation differ widely, religious strife and disagreement have arisen among mankind. The light of true religion has been extinguished and the unity of the world of humanity destroyed. The prophets of God voiced the spirit of unity and agreement. They have been the founders of divine reality. Therefore, if the nations of the world forsake imitations and investigate the reality underlying the revealed word of God, they will agree and become reconciled, for reality is one and not multiple. But I think something about that perspective that, uh, that appealed to me to share is just this idea that ah, there's so much time that has come between the revelation of these teachings and now that it makes sense that there's lots of different types of interpretations and questions and, and uh, you know, disagreements that have arisen um, and, and a difficulty to unveil the, you know, the truth that was, um, you know, uh, the original intention that was revealed so long ago. But I think what I hold in my heart is the, is the belief that God wants us to be united <laughs> and that, he, that the purpose of these teachings, that their foundation is meant to bring about that unity. Um, and so to investigate these teachings in a way that brings, a, brings that about is something that, that we can, a perspective that we can use when we're looking at them. If you look at, you know, uh, Christianity, you, you, you can see even through the Gospels, things that do seem like contradictions. Uh, when, for example, is Jesus crucified? When it does the curtain split? Um, does it split before Jesus dies or after Jesus dies? But if you read into what each of the Gospel writers is trying to say, Luke is going for repentance. M Mark, Matthew, Paul, who's not a gospel writer, but a, a writer beforehand, they're all going for, uh, they're all going for faith is the mode to salvation. So it's like perceived contradictions are actually in many ways keys into what the gospel writers were trying to say, trying to communicate to, to their various communities. Yeah, and I mentioned before too, just the limitations of human language. How do you convey spiritual concepts and teachings from God? Like we only have the words that we're given and the language that they're revealed in, and then we have to learn to interpret them. And sometimes you have to translate them. And it also makes sense too that you'll see these, you know, these seemingly potentially minor or major contradictions based even on just those those elements of the limits of our human language to to understand them.